We are back speaking in regard to biblical eschatology. Recall just prior to the evangelistic meetings, the revival conference, uh, we started speaking of uh, eschatology, which is a fancy theological word for the study of the end times events, and we did so by laying a foundation for biblical interpretation. And this is very important. Yes, I could just go and begin telling you what we believe about the end times and what the Bible says about the end times, but I'd like to give you just a little bit more. I'd like to help you go just a little bit deeper. See, because when we speak about end times events, the church as a whole does not agree. We don't agree on what's going to happen. On Saturdays, just yesterday, we, there was a, a, a group that met in this building, the Seventh-day Adventists, who have a very different understanding of what's going to happen in the end times. There are other segments of um, what we would call uh, the Christian world that would believe entirely different things from either the Seventh-day Adventists or what, what we are going to present. And so the question becomes, who's right, who's wrong, and how can we know? I mean, we're all using Bible verses, right? And so what, we, what we're seeking to establish is not just what's going to happen, but why we believe what we believe about what's going to happen. Why we take the verses that we do and interpret them the way we do to come to the conclusions that we do. And so we spoke last time about the four basic tenets that we use, the four basic foundational concepts of biblical interpretation. We began with the concept that God's Word is true from beginning to end. We step into the understanding, the interpretation of the Word of God with, and this is not just for prophetic interpretation, when we interpret the Word of God, we assume first off that God's Word is true. That God is powerful enough and He is faithful enough to be faithful to His promises that He has kept His Word, He has preserved His Word, and He has inspired His Word. Then we also said that not only is God's Word true, but God intended to communicate with His Word. And that's important particularly as we get into prophecy. Because when people think of prophecy, they always want to think in code. They always want to try to read between the lines. They always want to try to count the number of words on a page and, and count all of these things and then come up with some super mystical, secret roadmap that tells us what's going to happen. But when we understand what God was doing by inspiring His Word, what we understand is that God wanted His Word to be understood. God didn't hide it from us. God didn't try to give us a, a puzzle that we have maze that we had to wind our way through. He gave us His Word desiring for us to understand it. And so God's Word is true. God desired His Word to be understood. God's Word is spiritual and so it can only be understood through divine illumination. That was our third point, if you recall. So we can only understand truly what the Word of God is saying as we are illuminated by His Holy Spirit to understand it. And then finally that while divine illumination is the key that unlocks the Scriptures, proper study, proper interpretation, it doesn't replace proper study. That even though you have the Holy Spirit of God indwelling, 
you are not just given a pass of studying and learning the Scriptures. So you're not just going to wake up one day, and, and Evangelist Stephen said this as well, that God is not going to do for you what you are unwilling to do for yourself because you, you lack the character. God is not going to wake you up in the morning, pull you out of bed, sit you in front of this book, and pour into your mind what this book says. God is not going to wake you up on Sunday morning, drag you out of bed, and drag you to church and set you in the seat so that you can hear what pastor has to say to you about the Word of God. There has to be an element of determination in your hearts that you are going to study the Word of God, that you are going to, to seek the Word of God so that the Holy Spirit, through divine illumination, can take your efforts and your de- determinations and make them through His grace, what they ought to be. Psalm 119.18 I started praying this prayer in college and it's worked for me. The psalmist says, Open thou mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. The psalmist asked God to illuminate him to Scripture. And I pray that before I study the Word of God every day, that He would open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of His law, that His Holy Spirit will teach me. And it's worked. And so those are those four... Tenants, and then we built upon that the idea that um, our interpretation should be, if, if we do believe that God's Word is true and that He intends to communicate, then we should take His Word literally, right? As best we can. Now, that doesn't mean everything is literal because we take things in a natural fashion. We read them naturally. If somebody is using metaphors, then we interpret them as metaphors. But where somebody is, is saying, I am giving you a historical account, we don't try to allegorize it. Genesis is written as history. Did you know that? It's written as a historical account. So we're not going to take the book of Genesis and try to allegorize it. And try to say that it, didn't, it really didn't mean what it says it means. Because it's presented as history, so we take it as history. And we'll see tonight that prophecy is presented quite differently and we'll need to take it as such. So literal, grammatical. We trust the words. We, we, we take the words within their context. We use the words as they were used in that day. We don't take a word that meant something to, in the Greek language and try to twist it to mean something else that's entirely foreign to how the Greeks would have understood it. Because the Bible was written, the New Testament was written in Greek. Or we don't take a Hebrew word in the Old Testament or an Aramaic word in the Old Testament and twist it to mean something that a Hebrew never would have assumed it meant. Unless there's cause in the text to assume that. Literal, grammatical, contextual. We interpret what's in the middle of the book based upon what's at the beginning. We allow revelation to build upon itself. We allow the Scriptures to interpret the Scriptures. If there's something that's a little bit confusing in the book of James, such as, can works save him? Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works, right? Does that mean works salvation? Well, if we interpret James in the context of the whole of Scripture, well, absolutely not. Because Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and not, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. Contradiction, Pastor? No, not contradiction. We simply need to interpret properly. 
We need to interpret James, with the, the, the ambiguity of James in light of the clarity of, say, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. So we, we interpret literally, we interpret grammatically, we interpret contextually, and finally we interpret historically. We understand that this was a book written in history. That it was written to real people at a real time, going through real events, having a real context, having real history to back them up, having um, unique lives and lifestyles, having unique thought processes, having unique experiences. And we don't seek to divorce our understanding of the Word of God from the time and the people, the time in which it was written and the people to whom it was written. And if we do that, then we are going to find the most natural and most clear understanding of the Word of God. So that was what we said last time. Now this evening we're going to focus in on a few elements of interpreting prophecy specifically. Now, if you are listening to this message online, for those of you that aren't sitting in front of me this morning, uh, this evening, excuse me, um, this might be a little bit easier if you had some pictures. So this sermon will be uploaded to YouTube, and if you'd like to listen to it on YouTube while following along with uh, some of the pictures that the congregation will get to see, then by all means that might help you a little bit. But for those of us who are here, let's dig in. I'm not going to be taking you to any particular passage for this. Again, the, the first few weeks here are going to be a little bit teachy. I know that this group doesn't mind that necessarily, um, but it's laying the foundation for when we dig into the scriptures and prophecy. So when we think about time in prophecy, let's start by talking about the concept of time in prophecy. Now, prophets sometimes saw future events in a present context. When we think about time in prophecy... Time is not linear in prophecy, as we would understand it from a human perspective. As you think of time, you think of placing one foot in front of the other, right? You take a step, you take a step, seconds are going by, things are happening, A becomes B, becomes C, becomes D, becomes E, and we, are, we, we can't cheat that system of time. One thing happens right after the next. But as God gave prophecy to the holy men of God who spake by the Spirit of God in the Old and New Testament, they didn't always see things entirely linearly. Sometimes they saw future events in a present context. Consider, if you will, Isaiah 9.6. In Isaiah 9.6, we see a prophecy which says this, For unto us a child is born, Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So we see that Isaiah saw the reality, the prophecy of Messiah, this son that is given in, in a present context. Unto us a son is given. He saw it as if it's happening today. And that's okay in prophecy. Sometimes they saw future events in the present context. But you know what's even more interesting? Sometimes the prophet saw future events in a past context. Isaiah 53 
is a great example of this. Another prophecy of Messiah. And we see some future prophecy. We see some present prophecy. In verse 2 it says, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. That's future. In verse 3 he says, He is despised and rejected of men. That's present. And notice verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. And so we see that sometimes prophecies, future events can be seen in the present context. Future events can also be seen in the past context. This shouldn't throw us off. This shouldn't confuse us. This shouldn't cause us great angst. These things happen because we have a God that is beyond time. Everything has already happened to God. God is in eternity past as He is in eternity future. At this very moment, God is also sitting with us in glory as much as He is sitting at the beginning of the world. We see time as a linear thing. God is not within the bounds of the linear nature of time. He created time. He's above time. He's beyond time. Jesus said in Revelation 13.8 that Jesus is the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Jesus Christ was literally slain before the worlds were even founded. Why? Because, well, God is beyond time. Because as, Jesus, as God was founding the world, as Jesus Christ was creating the world according to the will of the Father and through the power of the Holy Spirit, He was also, in their nature beyond time, already slain. And so as we seek to describe how the prophets saw their prophecies, we would say that they saw the future more in the context of space than they saw it in the context of time. May I describe to you what this means? As the prophet looked at the events in question, he didn't usually, with obvious exceptions of where dates are given and times are given in the prophecy, he didn't usually see a timeline of sequential events as much as he saw a group of events at some undesignated time in the future. As you're looking at this, the P stands for our prophet, and he's looking at a box that is the future. And he sees the white ones. Now, there are lots of other things happening. Some things happening outside the timeline of what he's looking at. Some things happening right along the events that he's looking at. But he only sees the white ones. He's seeing things in space. He's seeing a group, a cluster of events, perhaps one after the other, but that doesn't mean that they're immediately one after another. In this case, he's seeing number one, number three, and number five. He's... He's not being shown number four, uh, number two and number four. The events immediately following. And, and this, this will, will make more sense as we continue. And so he saw things more in space than he saw them in time. They saw the events in question, perhaps surrounding events and important milestones. And perhaps we would think of it as the difference between getting a street map from a store or getting a street map that, you're, that was drawn by a friend. If you go into a store and you get a map of Buffalo, or you go to the, the um, Buffalo Tourist um, Center and you were to get a map, 
it would have everything, right? Every street, every shop. But if you had a friend and you were going to tell them, okay, we've got church on Sunday. It starts, uh, Sunday school starts at 9 in the morning and our service starts at 10 in the morning. And let me show you how to get there. And you were to draw a map for them. You'd say, okay, well, here's 25 and here's 55 and you're going you're gonna to come up 25 and you're going to turn right on, on uh, 2nd Street and you're going to go until you see the big flagpole on the right and then our church is right on the left at 2nd Street and 2nd Avenue Northeast. And you're not going to draw the courthouse and you're not going to draw Walmart and you're not going to draw the middle school and the elementary schools and the high schools. You're not going to be thorough because you have a particular plan in mind. They don't need to see everything. They only need to see enough to get them there, right? That's kind of how God works in prophecy. God's not interested in showing us everything. God didn't tell us everything. He told us what we needed to know. He drew out for us what we needed to know. And He gave it to the prophets more in space than He gave it in time. And so as we consider time in prophecy, prophets often saw prophetic milestones in sequential order, though not necessarily in sequence. There may have been several events that happened between the milestones that they saw. Now this can mean that there are significant gaps of time between the prophetic milestones as the prophets saw them though they are, in fact, presented in the Bible as happening seemingly one after another. And so the prophet will see five events in his prophecy. And perhaps one event will happen, and the next event will happen 50 years later, and the next event 20 years after that, and the next event 100 years after that. And he's seeing them one after another because indeed they are happening one after another. But as we interpret the prophecy, we need to understand that they may happen several years apart. It may not be that they're happening one right after the other, right after the other, right after the other. It's simply that sequentially one follows another in the course of linear time. As prophets saw the future then, as we continue with this concept of time, they didn't so much see A to B to C as much as they saw milestones. Things happen that aren't mentioned. Things that seem sequential can, as I mentioned, be hundreds or even thousands of years apart from one another. God simply uh, presented the needed information from beginning to end. So if we were to take that chart that we had before of God working and showing the prophet things in space instead of in time, and we were to set that chart on its side, this is what we'd see. The prophet saw the white dots And he didn't see the black ones because they were not within the scope of what God was trying to show him. We liken this to as if, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago in our message on the sign gifts, we liken this to as if the prophet was standing on a mountaintop. Or if you were to stand on a mountaintop. You go to Colorado, you go to Wyoming, go to Montana and you stand in in the Rockies. And as you stand on the top of a mountain and you look out, you see mountain peaks. You don't see the valleys. You don't know what's in those valleys. You don't know how big those valleys are. There may be towns in those valleys, hundreds of people in those valleys, but you don't see them. All you see are the mountaintops. When we interpret prophecy, this can be oftentimes how God works. God is showing the prophets milestones 
the mountaintops of historical events. But he, he's not necessarily showing the prophet what's happening in between those events. So we're seeing prophetic milestones with perhaps hundreds or thousands of years in between them. But the prophet seeing them one after another because all he sees are the peaks. He describes the first peak. Then he describes the second peak. Then he describes the third peak. He has no concept of what's between them. God didn't reveal that to him. So that is time in prophecy. That's how, when we, when we approach prophecy, we need to understand that time doesn't always work as we think of time today. One second right after the next second. We also see in prophecy a concept called double reference or dual fulfillment. The concept of dual fulfillment as we see it in scriptures, is that an event can often have a near fulfillment, one that we would assume to be the fulfillment of the prophecy, only to find out later that the prophecy is considered by God as having yet been to be fulfilled. In other words, a prophet will give a prophecy, and then we will see something happen in history that to us would seem to be the fulfillment of that prophecy. And then later in history, we find out God still considers that prophecy to be yet unfulfilled. May I give you an example of this? I didn't give you an example of the time thing. You'll, you'll see one in, in a, a couple of weeks. I'll show you one in Scripture. Uh, and you'll perhaps understand it a little better there. But I don't want to bog us down um, with that this evening. But I would like to show you a, prophet, uh, a prophecy that fits this bill. The dual fulfillment in Daniel chapter 11. Feel free to turn there if you would like. Daniel 11. In Daniel 11, we see a prophecy. And the prophecy is of a particular man who has already come and gone in history. In verse 30, the Scriptures say this, For the, the ships of Chittim shall come against him, therefore he shall be grieved and return and have indignation against the Holy Covenant. So shall he do. He shall even return and have intelligence with them that forsake the Holy Covenant. And arms shall stand on his part, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength, and shall take away the daily sacrifice, and shall place the abomination that maketh desolate. And such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt by flatteries, but the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. Here we see a prophecy that was fulfilled in 186 B.C., excuse me, 168 B.C., when a man, a king by the name of Antiochus IV, he was a king um, um, of Syria, is turned away by the Romans from his invasion. His name is also known in Scripture and, or excuse me, in, in history, not in Scripture, as Antiochus Epiphanes. And on his way back, he, he was going down to Egypt to, to assault Egypt. And a Roman emissary stood in front of him and said, you turn around or you're going to have problems with Rome. Well, Antiochus did not have the strength to fight Rome. 
And so he had to turn around. And he was grumpy. He was very upset that he got turned away. And he took that anger out on Jerusalem. And one of the things that he did in 168 B.C. was he went into the temple and he desecrated it. He sacrificed a pig upon the altar. And of course, a pig is unclean in Jewish culture. He erected a statue of Zeus in the holiest of holies. He defiled the temple. Exactly as Daniel prophesied. Now, we would assume that's it then, right? This is the abomination that maketh desolate. This is Antiochus Epiphanes. This has happened. This has been fulfilled. But turn with me now to Matthew chapter 24. Jesus Christ is speaking 200 years after Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes came in 168 B.C., We're now in somewhere around 30 A.D., about 200 years later. And 200 years later, Jesus Christ is telling His disciples about the end of the world, and He says this in Matthew 24, 15. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand... Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. Wait a minute. We could trace the history and see the literal fulfillment of Daniel chapter 11, verse 31 in history. A.D. 168. It's recorded. What did Jesus mean that when they shall see, when in the future they'll see the abomination of desolation? This is dual fulfillment. It happened in 168 B.C. and it's going to happen again when Antichrist, halfway through the tribulation, the the seven years of tribulation, disannuls his covenant with Israel and places himself on the throne in the temple therefore desecrating the temple in the exact uh, same spirit that Antiochus Epiphanes did. This is dual fulfillment. We call Antiochus, if we want to um, think of it this way, as the type of Antichrist, which is the anti-type. And so dual fulfillment. There's a near fulfillment and there's a far fulfillment. The idea is that there are two events widely separated by time. One is near and one is far. One is far more remote, but they are brought together in one prophecy, in one prophetic reference. And you say, why would this be? Why would it be that God would do this? Well, notice that quote there. It was the purpose of God to give the near and far view so that the fulfillment of the one should be the assurance of the fulfillment of the other. In other words, God showed us a time in history where this did happen to validate the prophet of God so that we would know without question when Jesus Christ says it's going to happen again that it will. Now, of course, we believe the Bible, so we we believe that it would happen anyway. But Daniel's prophecy was validated in 168 B.C., 
And because it was validated and we see its truth, we can know 100% that there's coming a day when, when a man again desecrates the temple of the Lord. That there is coming another abomination of desolation. And in Daniel, that second abomination of desolation is spoken of quite clearly. We'll see that in a couple of weeks. So, let me give you a picture again of what the prophet's seeing here. We have our prophet, and as he's looking, he is seeing one event. Remember, outside the concept of time, so he's only seeing a milestone here, but we might say it this way, that event is actually two separate events, that as he's looking on, he only sees one, but it's going to happen twice. It's going to happen in two separate contexts. One event, one prophecy, excuse me, one prophecy, two events. One prophecy, two fulfillments of that prophecy. The first fulfillment assuring us of the second fulfillment. So that's dual fulfillment in prophecy. So we see that time can be unique in prophecy. We see that fulfillment can be unique. Just because, it's been, just because we've seen it happen in history doesn't mean it can't be seen again. Doesn't mean it's not to be fulfilled again. And the Lord indicates to us when this is the case. The third concept we're going to look at, and there's only four that we're going to look at this evening, the third one is conditions in prophecy. Conditions in prophecy. Prophecies can be conditional, even when they're not explicitly stated to be conditional. One of the most well-known prophecies in the Old Testament was an unstated conditional prophecy. That's a prophecy of a man named Jonah. Remember him? You know Jonah. You know the story. Jonah is called by God to prophesy against Nineveh. So after running and being swallowed by great fish and then being spewed up on the shore and learning his lesson that he can't run from God and that God's purposes will be fulfilled, he goes into the city and he declares something. Do you remember what he declared? God has declared that this city will be destroyed in 40 days. That was his message. There were no conditions. There was no, the city will be destroyed unless... There is no, the city might be destroyed. There is no, there is a possibility that the city will be destroyed. He went into the middle of the city and as far as the Scriptures tell us, his message was, put your affairs in order because in 40 days God is going to destroy this city. But something happened after that. Nineveh responded with humility and repentance. Nineveh, from the king, from the greatest, all the way down to the the, the cattle rent their clothes, put sackcloth and ashes on their heads. They literally put sackcloth and ashes on their cows. And they begged God for mercy. Do you remember what happened? God granted them mercy. God said, I will not destroy this city. Now, God did not give them any conditions. This may or may not happen. But God responded in mercy to the humility of the people. He diverted His judgment. And so we see that prophecy can indeed be conditional. That when God says something is going to happen, He is fully within His right as a sovereign God to divert His judgment or divert His blessings. Thomas Horne said this, 
Predictions denouncing judgments to come do not in themselves speak about the absolute futurity of the event, but only declare what is expected by persons to who they are made and what will certainly come to pass unless God in His mercy interpose between the threatening and the event. So in other words, this prophecy is as good as fulfilled unless God divinely steps in in His mercy and diverts something, changes something according to His goodness and according to His sovereignty and according to His power. So, as we think about this pictorially, I'm sorry that's a little dark, the prophet sees an event, that's that white dot, and he sees people heading directly toward that event. So the prophet sees the event, he sees the people heading towards it, and so he tells them, look people, the city's going to be destroyed in, seven, in 40 days. There's 40 days ahead. You're going this way. God's plan is going this way. They're going to intersect in 40 days. You're going to be destroyed. Then the people repented. And when the people repented, they changed their course. And so what the prophet saw as happening, according to God's plan, will no longer happen because the conditions have changed and God has therefore diverted his judgment. So prophecies can be conditional even when not explicitly stated. And we need to understand this so that it doesn't throw us when something like this happens. When God says in 40 days Nineveh is going to be destroyed and then all of a sudden Nineveh is not destroyed. Well then, was God lying? No. Our God cannot lie, the Scriptures tell us. Well, then maybe, maybe it was that God was just and we can try to explain this stuff away, right? God in His sovereignty knew that if He declared judgment that they would divert, so He never intended to, to do the judgment because He knew that they'd divert and they'd, ha- they'd uh, repent when He declared judgment. So His declaration of judgment was the means by which He caused them to, to repent of their sin, therefore diverting the judgment. We can say all of those things, but the fact of the matter is that's speculation. All we know is that God had declared, thus saith the Lord, the city will be destroyed in 40 days. They repented, and God said, I'm not going to destroy the city. So we take the Word of God at face value, and we realize that prophecy can be conditional. Now, the last thing that I'd like to talk to you about today in regard to prophecy are types. I talked to you already about Antiochus Epiphanes and Antichrist and the type-antitype relationship. A type can be defined in several ways. One man defines it this way. The preordained representative relation which certain persons, events, and institutions of the Old Testament bear to the corresponding persons, events, and institutions in the New or the New Testament. So a type is an Old Testament representative of a New Testament person, event, or truth. The antitype, then, is the New Testament fulfillment of the Old Testament person, event, and truth. And we see this quite often, that we'll see a man or an event in the Old Testament that is meant to prophesy, be representative of an event or person in the New Testament. You say, Pastor, what are you talking about? Well, we'll talk about it in just a minute. Actually, let me show you an example, then we'll talk about it. Please turn with me to John 3.
In John 3, Jesus is speaking to a man named Nicodemus, you recall. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, a leader of the Jews, and he came to Jesus by night asking Him some questions. Rabbi, I know that Thou art from God, for no man can do the things that You can do except he be from God. And Jesus Christ responded to him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is confused. He said, How can a man be born again? How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? So they're having this conversation. Jesus Christ is teaching Nicodemus. And in verse 9, notice Nicodemus says, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up into heaven, up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And so here we see Jesus Christ reference the serpent in the wilderness found in Numbers. You remember the story, the historical account. Israel is murmuring in the wilderness and God sends fiery serpents among them. These serpents bite the people and the people die in agony. And the people cry out unto the Lord for mercy and God says, Moses, build a brazen serpent and place that brazen serpent upon a pole and lift that pole up and put it in the midst of the camp. And whenever one of the children of Israel is bit by one of these fiery serpents, if they will but look upon the brazen serpent, they will live and not die. That is a real event in history that happened. It had a purpose, did it not? God established this serpent for the direct purpose of saving Israel when they were bitten by fiery serpents. However, it also was a type. It was intended to stand in history as a lesson so that when Jesus Christ came, the Jews in Israel would be able to relate to Jesus' ministry on the cross. And so he says in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And so this gives us an understanding of the character and the nature of salvation. Look and live. If you will but place your faith in Jesus Christ, if you will but look to Him, trusting that He will do what He said He will do, then He will save you from your sins. Just as when an Israelite would but look at the brazen serpent in faith, believing that if they were indeed to look on that serpent, they would live, and they did. So, Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the antitype that is typified in the brazen serpent that was raised in the wilderness. That is the type-antitype relationship. And so we would see that the brazen serpent is representative. As we consider types and prophecies, there are five 
principles that I'll give you here. The antitype is the ideal. It is the spiritual reality both corresponding to as well as surpassing the type. The type may have its own place and meaning independent of the antitype, such as the brazen serpent, such as the tabernacle, the many things in Scripture that are types. The type may not be announced in the Old Testament. No one in the Old Testament knew the brazen serpent was a type of Christ. But it was nonetheless. The only secure authority for the type-antitype relationship is when the Scriptures designate it. In other words, we could go into the Old Testament and we could see all sorts of relationships. But the only authority with which we can say, yes, that was a type of Christ, or that was a type of something is when the Scriptures tell us that it was. And they do. And then finally, the type-antitype relationship is more than simply resemblance. God didn't just say, oh, look, the brazen serpent. That's kind of a good, it's kind of a a similar idea to what Jesus is going to do. So Jesus can use it as an example. That wasn't it. God designed the brazen serpent as a clear and explicit lesson to Israel about Christ as He did the Passover lamb, as He did the feasts, as He did the tabernacle. These were all supposed to be, they were what they were, so that Israel would see the spiritual reality of them one day in Jesus Christ and in His ministry. So as we talked about Antichrist, and as we talked about Antiochus Epiphanes, the abomination of desolation, the prophet sees these, the abomination of desolation. We recognize it to be Antiochus and Antichrist. We would say Antiochus is the type. And Antichrist is the complete fulfillment. Because Antiochus happened, we know that Antichrist will happen. When we look at the character and the wickedness of Antiochus Epiphanes, we can understand some of the character and wickedness of Antichrist. Only heightened, right? That was our first point. That the, the type is a... Um, is the, the antitype is always greater, is always more, is always a heightened reality surpassing the type. And so these are some of those principles of prophetic interpretation. As we step into understanding prophecy, it's my great desire that that you would understand these concepts. I I didn't like that I had to use Sunday night as the forum for this. I really would have preferred to to shoot it to like a Sunday school. And I've done this in Sunday school before, biblical interpretation. But I really, really desire that everybody that's here on Sunday night would grasp this. So there's not exactly going to be a nugget for you to take away an application this evening. And I apologize for that. I like to give you something that you can apply to your own life. But please know that the foundation that I'm giving you in interpretation, the foundation that I'm giving you in prophetic interpretation will be of inestimable value to you so that when somebody comes up and they have a different interpretation and they they start telling you what they think is going to happen and the verses that they use to, to prove it, you can not just say, well, that's not what I've learned, so I'm going to tell you what I've learned but you can actually have the foundation to say, wait a minute, this is not just different from what I've learned, but this is in fact going beyond the scope of how I understand the Bible ought to be read and how the Bible ought to be understood. And that will give us a greater, 
deeper foundation. We can sink our roots deeper into what we believe and we can have answers. And I believe that that's very important. And so that's why we're doing what we're doing. We'll close with that this evening. We will have one more week um, of foundational material before we really step into starting to understand the broad context and then the nitty-gritty of prophecy. Let's pray together.